turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning, we come to a portion of Corinthians that really is that turning point moment in the book. It's a relational shift that takes place. It's frankly a little stunning, a little surprising uh, at this point, and yet it is critically important to understanding both the book, uh, but then our own spiritual walk as well. And it all surrounds this idea, this concept of repentance. It's a term that is at the very bedrock of the way we understand and live out the gospel. Uh, And it is so critically important, we're going to take two weeks to work on it. And I just want you to know the layout uh, this week and next week. I I want to demonstrate, or if we could say this way, define repentance biblically and help us all to get on the same page theologically. And then next week, uh, because of the uh, importance of it, we're going to take the time to work through the concept of repentance relationally. How does that really influence the way you and I do daily life, both towards God and towards one another? Uh, And so lots less practical, I think, application this week. But having said that, I think the harder work is this week. Uh, I think it's more difficult because it affects the way you and I think. And any time you're trying to Uh, change, shift thought patterns, uh, that's really, really, really hard, and it takes lots of effort. I I think it's actually impossible for me to do. Uh, I think it takes the Holy Spirit doing that work in a person's life and to uh, illuminate them, open their eyes, help them to understand, and help them to see. And so what I want to do is is I want to read the text this morning, and to be very clear with you, we're not going to spend a ton of time in 2 Corinthians 7. We're going to spend a lot of time throughout the rest of the Bible understanding what it has to actually say about repentance because Paul in this moment is, is going to refer to repentance in a very particular way. And if we don't get what Paul understands about repentance, we don't then get what he's saying to the Corinthians. And so it's that critically important. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm going to read from verse 9 down through the first half of verse 13. It's one of those moments when they split them up into verses, they, they kind of did a rough job there. Uh, So we'll just go through 13a, but picking up in verse 9, this is what Paul is writing to this church, very troubled church in Corinth. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. This past week, I was stunned to watch a news report as the mother of the young man who, some of you are aware of of this case, some of you may not be, um, but some time ago, a young man portrayed himself to be an Uber driver, picked up a young lady USC student down in the five points and then viciously murdered her. Um, I will spare you the gory details, but it was brutal. And so this past week, he was sentenced, life without parole. And at his sentencing hearing, his mother spoke. And what stunned me was not as much his mother's perspective, but the judge's response. 
And the mother began speaking, and what she began her prepared comments with is that my son is innocent. I know my son didn't do this. And the judge stopped her, and he basically looked at her and he said, yes, he did. He's been found guilty by a jury of his peers. It's very clear. The evidence is there. He did it, and I'm not going to permit you to say that at his hearing. I thought, well done, judge. He let her continue on. He stopped her later again because she was again referencing, my son didn't do this. And he asked this mother at that point, how do you know that he didn't do this? And this was her answer. Because I didn't raise him that way. Can I just say that, that sometimes when sin happens and criminal actions happen, we wrestle with the truth that is apparent. And I think we want to give that, that mom lots of grace. Her son has done something absolutely horrific. We, we, we don't judge her that way. But it's very clear she is having an immensely difficult time wrestling with the reality of what has taken place. And clearly her son is refusing to own what he has done. So everybody's sad and everybody's sorrowful in that courtroom. But it's not repentance. It's sadness, it's grief, but it's not turning. It's not owning truth. And I think when we think about repentance, lots of times it's as Plutarch, he's probably the first guy we can find that, that came up with this idea. He would have been a small child when Paul is actually writing this letter to 2 Corinthians. But Plutarch came up with this concept of what he called crocodile tears. And it was this idea of a crocodile cries when it's eating its prey. Now, scientifically we now know they, they actually don't. So whether it's they've been laying on dry land so long their, their eyes have dried out and then they happen to eat and that activates it, whether it's the eating process, we're not sure but they thought it, and it is so prevalent of a comment, and it goes so far back to Plutarch's day, really same day uh, timing uh, era as Second Corinthians, that it, it, that phrase, crocodile tears, actually finds itself into every modern Western language because they find their roots there uh, in the Latin and the Greek. And so it's this idea that someone is sad for what happened, but they're not really sad about it. It's kind of like when my brother and I would get into a fight and my mom would make us hug it out right? Like, like sometimes you're, you're putting a serious squeeze on there because then when your brother starts to pull away, you can say, see, mom, he doesn't want to hug. You're not really sad and you really don't really love this person. Or at that time when I had a friend of mine, his mom um, came, to, came to me because her little girl was getting bullied, made fun of. Um, she had a form of cranial synostosis where her forehead bulged out and she was getting bullied horrifically by a little boy. And she had gone to the school. school, school wasn't doing anything, gone to teachers, teachers weren't doing anything, bus driver wasn't doing anything. She came to me and she said, if my son does something, he's going to get expelled, would you handle this? And so I handled it. And ended up in the principal's office with me, this little boy, and his grandpa, who was rather irate because his grandson was sitting there with a black eye and a bloody nose. And the principal looked at me and said, if you don't apologize, if you're not sorry about it, you're going to get suspended. I'm sorry. I was not sorry. You know, when we have to deal with the truth of our sin, it is easy for us to fake grief, or it's even easy for us to have some form of grief, but it's not truth-based. None of that is repentance. And yet Paul writes to this church and he says, I'm convinced you've repented. And so now there can be relational restoration. And so what we want to be on is mission this morning to understand what does the Bible say about repentance. Repentance is the God-given response that sees sin rightly, feels sorrow over sin, and then turns from sin to God. 
Chapter 7 is the turning point in the book. It's a step of relational restoration that's shocking. We've seen that Paul is even comforted and joyous over what is going on with them. This church has slandered Paul. This church has dismissed Paul. This church has falsely accused Paul. This church, at the last time Paul was in Corinth, they ran him out of town with an incredibly ugly business meeting that nobody in the church wanted to deal with, and Paul had to flee away because it wasn't going to work. It's so bad that Paul doesn't come back. He sends his buddy Titus with a really bold, severe letter to rebuke them. That's this church, and suddenly he says, I have comfort and joy with you. I want you to think right now, when was the last time you have been deeply wounded by someone? Can you imagine now saying they are your comfort and joy? When was the last time you deeply wounded someone else? And have you pursued relational restoration where they would have the freedom to say you are my comfort and joy? And what has changed, what has made the difference, is this astounding word, repentance. And so what does Paul mean? Well, how does Paul understand it? How could it be so powerful in relational restoration? And then how can we live it out in our lives? So this week, defining, next week, more applying relationally. Repentance is a God-given response. It doesn't, it's not primarily sourced in you. It is a gift from God. We'll look at a text that helps us to understand that. And so it's not you working it up, it's God's at work in you, and you're responding to that working of the Holy Spirit. It is a perspective shift. You view it A, now you view it B. It's, it's you see it one way, now you see it another way. You are intellectually submitting to what God says about your sinfulness. I'm going to now see it the way God sees it. It's not just that, but there is sorrow. You do not have repentance without sorrow. There's an emotional component. God has made us to be emotional beings. There is a sorrowing over it, and then there's actual turning. There is a difference in the things you do. Now, to get there, I think we have to understand, first of all, the twisted thinking that exists out there about repentance. There are two primary uh, errors that people engage in when they think about this term repentance or when someone says you need to repent now maybe they think of the comical old script or a comic of the old prophet with the long white hair holding up a sign repent or you'll die uh very jonah-esque right jonah gets sent to nineveh goes through the city repent or you'll die repent or you'll die and people so then think of it as this harsh word or a pollyanna preacher some of you will understand that shouting so loud it makes the chandeliers shake right like what is repentance and and how do we think about it? And there's two common twisted views. The first twisted view is people wrongly define it, and the second one is it's wrongly felt. Now, the definition here, the definition when I say it's wrongly defined, that's primarily experienced in Christian circles. What it is is there are theologians out there and, and some students of the Word that they come to the term repent, and they, they know enough of of the original languages, Koine Greek, to know that it's a compound word. Repent is. It's, it's metanoia. Meta, meaning change. You might think of the word metamorphosis. We, we have the same uh, root term there, change. And noia, which is a way of saying the mind. Change of mind. And so are th there are those out there that will preach and proclaim and state that's exactly what repentance is. You've changed your mind. And so we think of it in salvation. So a person is lost. Uh, they have not turned to Christ. They have not been converted. 
And they would say, you need to have a change of mind about who God is, who Jesus is, and who you are. And that's what repentance is. It's a change of mind. Now, there's problems with this on a number of levels. First of all, first of all, and I want to be very kind to those who hold that view, but let me just put it this way. They are proving in that moment they don't have the foggiest clue with the way language works. Let me give you an example. What is that? That's a butterfly. It is. What about a lightning bug? You ever seen a lightning bug? How about friendship? You know what friendship is? That's all it is. All friendship is is when two friends are in a boat. That's all friendship is. Right? Compound words, whether they are from the Greek, the Hebrew, the Aramaic, the English, Spanish, French, Russian, just keep the list going, Portuguese, compound words almost always are more than just the sum of their parts. And so when we look at a word to say, well, it's metanoia, so that just means change of mind. It doesn't actually mean sorrow. It doesn't actually mean turning. It's just you've changed your mind. It's to do such a disservice to the term. It's to do such a disservice to the way language works as to be almost laughable. What's the temptation there? Why do people want that? Why do people think that? Because, because I think they're otherwise very well-intentioned people. And I'll tell you why that's attractive, why that error, why that fallacy is so attractive to people. Because it's one thing to get someone to agree that X, whatever X may be, is wrong. It's a whole nother thing for them to actually turn and stop doing X. I mean, how many people have you met that say, yeah, um, my addiction to alcohol is wrong? Great. You've had a change of mind. That's totally different than them actually then taking steps to stop being addicted to alcohol. I know that I shouldn't hit my wife. You know, heavy revy. That's radically different than moving into a pattern life that stops hitting your wife. But the problem is we all know this. Getting someone to agree something is wrong is so much easier than actually setting them on a course of change behavior, isn't it? You know it's true in your life. You ever been caught in a pattern of conflict? You ever been caught in a pattern of sin? And you realize it's far harder to break out of the habit pattern of that sin than it is even to acknowledge that it's wrong? And so the first error we run into is this idea that that's all that repentance is, is that it's a change of mind. Now, it's a big deal relationally. It's a huge deal relationally. If someone says, um, you know, if you're dealing with your child and your child kept coming to you um, and they kept stealing Oreo cookies, and you understand the temptation because like Oreo cookies are like manna from heaven, right? You get the temptation, but you want them to ask. They may not just take them, right? And so you're dealing with them, and your little child is in tears, you know, and, and they're crying because they know they shouldn't take them. I agree, Mommy, Daddy. I agree I should not be stealing Oreos. And they got Oreo crumbs on their face. They got a glass with milk because the only way to eat an Oreo is dunking. You're eating it any other way. Somebody has led you away from the promised land. You dunk the Oreos. So they got all this stuff. And they're like, I know I shouldn't do it. The very next day, they're dunking it again. They're dunking it again. You know the reality is you want more than them just agreeing that it's wrong. It's so a relationally, it's a problem, but biblically at the core, it's a huge problem. Because Jesus says this in the book of Luke, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The very truth of the gospel is that we are lost people, we're all, we're all lost, 
We're all sinners. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. Who in here hasn't lied or stolen something, time or energy or effort from other, someone else? Who here hasn't dishonored their mom and dad at some point? Who here hasn't been sinfully angry with someone? Like we're all sinners. And because we're sinners, there's consequences. The wages of sin is death. Jesus, though, has come so that you don't have to experience death. And you don't have to live in your sin. And so he says, I didn't come to call the righteous. And he's not saying there's righteous people. What he's saying is people who think they're righteous. Because someone who's well doesn't need a physician. He says, I've come to call sinners to repentance. Is that all Jesus meant? Is is that all he meant in the gospel? Is you're lost and you're dead and you're sin and you're going to go into eternal hell. And all you do is just change your mind about it. You know what? I am lost. And I shouldn't do that anymore. Boom! You're sa- is that what he means? If you take repentance to be just the, the parts of the word, you end up with a whole host of people that think just because they agree that Jesus is who he says he is, they're saved. Can I just tell you, what is the radical difference between the demons and the angels? It's not that they, the difference is not their perspective on Jesus. They both believe Jesus is who he says he is. But one group was willing to submit and one group was not. When we take repentance and we just make it the sum part total of its words, we do a tremendous disservice to the gospel. When Peter, Peter in the book of Acts, chapter 3, verse 19, he goes and he preaches and he says this, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Is that all Jesus and Peter are talking about? A, A change of mind? A wrong view of repentance in this area undermines the gospel? It leaves victims vulnerable? It denies the holiness of God and it dismantles relationships. And so the first error is that it's wrongly defined. The second error is that it's wrongly felt. Now this is an older and more common twist on repentance that confuses repentance with sorrow. More specifically, when people believe that sorrow, grief, or sadness over doing something is the same thing as repentance. Like, so maybe it's not even crocodile tears. Maybe they genuinely are sad that they did that thing. You know, like, I think lots of times we, we would try to define it this way. Are you sorry you got caught, or are you sorry for what you did? Well, you know what? Maybe it's both. Maybe they really are sorry they got caught, and they did it. That's still not the same as repentance. It's not. There are a whole host of things in your life you may be sad about. You may be sad you did it. You may live with regret that you did this. You may regret that someone did this to you, that you experienced this, you were in that spot. That's not the same to say, I am now turning from that. Why do we like to go there? Paul is even citing the difference here in our text of the difference between a godly grief and a worldly grief. It's the same word. Grief, here's the same word. There's sorrow. There's sorrow for it. So there's a chance here, there's a chance that someone would be sorrowful that they caused Paul pain. They're sorrowful they behaved the way they had. They're sorrowful they they hadn't obeyed before. They're sorrowful that Paul had to write a harsh letter to them. They're sorrowful that he had to send Titus. They're sorrowful that they quit raising money for the the other believers. They're sorrowful over it. But, But Paul cites that there could still be worldly grief. Don't ever think just because you're sad you did something that you've actually repented over it. I think, um, I think a good example in my own life would be getting into a dispute with my wife. 
and so we all have flesh patterns, and so it would not be uncommon I get into a dispute with my wife, and, and so we're disagreeing over something, and I do say or act in a way that's sinful in, that, in the moment of that conflict, right? Either I'm harsh or I'm unloving, certainly not picturing the leadership of Christ, um, not willing to own my own errors, not willing to own my own faults and fallacies, and I want to make points, right? And so maybe I feel like my wife's hurting me, so I need, to, I need her to hurt so she realizes I hurt. You ever do that? Okay, if you don't, I'll just track with Steve's illustration and imagine, right? right. Um, but, like, I, you know, because if she don't get how I hurt, she's going to keep hurting me. And so I need her to know, right? I get to the end of that conflict, you know, and then suddenly, so then, so then God shows up in a powerful way, overwhelms my arrogance, my, my pride, and overwhelms whatever might be going on in her heart, and then, so then we have confession and forgiveness, and we, we ask forgiveness, and we want to be restored. Can I tell you, there's times I've walked away from those, and I'm sorry I had done and said the things the way I had said and done them, but I'm kind of like hashtag sorry, not sorry. Like, I know biblically that was not portraying Jesus to her, but it seemed to work, right? You ever do that? And like, you know it's wrong, and you're even sad you did it. Or how about with your children, right? Nobody, nobody ever had a baby and thought, I, I am going to be a screaming parent sometime. That is just going to be wonderful. I cannot wait to be that parent. And then your kids grow up, and you, at some point, are that screaming parent, right? You, like, last nerve, bing, goes, and you sinfully are angry with your children. And you know you shouldn't, and you're sad about it. But man, they stopped. It worked. And you were tempted in that moment to be sad over using that method, but that's not the same as repentant. I'm going to run from ever doing that again. And it's easy for us to assume that grief over sin is the same as repentance over sin. It's not. Why are we prone to that? Well, I think in a number of ways. I think if we think the best in 1 Corinthians 13, we're called to think the best about people. We're called to believe the best about people. And so we want to believe when someone is in front of us and they are crying, they are grieving, they are sorrowful over what has happened. I think we all then want to shove that under 1 Corinthians 13 love and just believe then that that's the same as repentance. And Paul is delicately telling us here that's not necessarily the case. Someone can be sad, someone can be crying, someone can be truly grieving over what has happened that's not the same as godly grief and repentance. To be clear then, while grief is a part of repentance and an important part, grief apart from true repentance actually leads to death. He says, I'm thankful that it wasn't worldly grief. As a rejoice, not because you were grieved. He doesn't even get excited that they were made sad. I think that's ironic because sometimes we are just excited when someone sinned against us that they seem sad about it. Now, I don't rejoice because you're grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so you suffered no loss through this. And what he means by that is so that you didn't fail to grow as a result of my instruction. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. It's critically important to differentiate these. Sorrow and grief is not the same as repentance. And so with that understanding that those are the two common, most common fallacies, how do we really come up with this definition that repentance is a God-given response 
that sees sin rightly, feels sorrow for sin and turns from sin. And so I wanted to start with where it's wrong, but I want to spend the, the, the bulk with where it's right and how do we think about it. And so let's tackle this first one, that repentance is from God. When you and I are saved, or we talk about the concept of salvation, there are two critical components that a person is called to do. So we have a lost person. Uh, they are beginning to be awakened to the reality that they're a sinner. They've done terrible things. They've done wicked things. They've done sinful things that nobody else knows about but God. They know they're a sinner, right? We always got people in the world think, I'm really not a sinner. Yeah, you, like you know, right? Like, okay, you know you are. So I'm a sinner, but I'm not the worst sinner. Me neither. Guess what? Not Hitler. Still really bad, right? Not the full expression of my sin that I could do. There's lots, you know, sometimes I want to convince myself, look, there's lots of things I could have done, but I didn't do, right? Doesn't that get me Jesus points? No, it doesn't. Like, let's just talk about, like, I'm a sinner, so I realize this. And then the Bible calls you to believe who Jesus is, faith, and repent. Really critical components. Belief in what? Faith in what? Faith that Jesus Christ is God who came, lived a perfect sinless life, and he paid for my sin. He paid for your sins. He paid for the cross. Somebody had to pay for your sin. Jesus said, I'll pay it for him. Jesus died on the cross for your sin, and he was raised from the dead three days later. And Jesus says, if you will put your faith and trust in me, in my work, in who I am and who, what I have done, and turn from your sin toward me, I'll save you. Faith and repentance, belief and whatever this word repentance is, are key components. Now what's critical for us to understand is that that doesn't find its origination in you. We know that faith doesn't, right? Because of texts like Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. All kinds of theologians want to, well, which one's the gift? Which one's the gift? Like, frankly, the language is fairly clear here. All of it that preceded was a gift. Salvation, grace, and your faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God wants to save you by his power, not your power, so he gets the glory and you don't. And so what he does is he awakens your soul. We call that theologically regeneration. He gives you life and instantaneously you express that faith, belief, and repentance. These are gifts from God. This is really important. It, it tracks throughout the whole Bible. This isn't new to the New Testament. Isaiah 55, 7, this is the way the prophet preached to his people. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Turn from your ways, trust in me, receive pardon. But that expression finds its way all the way into Jesus' preaching in Mark, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, he starts recording the very first sermon or words of Jesus proclaiming who he is. And in Mark 1.15, Jesus put it this way, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Repentance is a gift of God. It's from him. It's his generosity. It's his grace. And so, like faith, repentance is a gift to a lost man. But in a believing state, we're not sinless. We still go on sinning. And so guess what we need? We need 
continual strengthened faith, and we need ongoing lives of repentance. Uh, Martin Luther, when he nails the 95 Thesis to the, the church door at Wittenberg, one of the, the very first point of, the, of this 95 Thesis is that as believers, this is Steve's modern-day translation, feel free to look up Luther's exact words later, but um, uh, as believers, we live ongoing lives of repentance because it's God's gift to us. It's actually so critical that if you have someone in your midst uh, someone who claims Jesus, but they live in an unrepentant way. That's really important. Not that they live as a sinner, because guess what? We're all going to sin. Not only are we all going to sin, we're going to we're going to sin against each other. Um, but we need to be repentant of those sins. And so he says the problem in Matthew 18 is if you've got somebody who says I follow Jesus, but they don't repent, he says then they can't keep going saying I follow Jesus and be a part of your group. You actually need to confront them challenge them through a multi-step process lovingly patiently pursuing them um, but then there'll come a point they're just not going to repent over their sin and you say look you can't be a part of us that way anymore that's a tough step that's that's hard but that's how important repentance is so when we look at a believer we are calling that we're expecting this ongoing working as a result of the gift of god in them it's the spirit in you and in us listen i when, 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 we have, when I have conflict, relational conflict, whether it's a friend, my, my children, or my wife, it's not the power of Steve's convincing words. It's not the power of their convincing words that suddenly opens my eyes to the miserable jerk I'm being. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's his gifting. It's suddenly in that moment, it's like the sky crashes down and your eyes are open to who you are and what you've been doing. And you repent. And so like faith, repentance is a gift to the lost man. He exercises it for conversion. For the believer, it's an ongoing work of the Spirit to which we are called to submit. And so repentance is from God. Secondarily, though, repentance does involve how you think. Now, let's just first agree that a change of mind is a part of repentance. Um, now, this concept that that's all it is, is... is <laughs> a masterful satanic device um, because it takes a little bit of truth and makes it the totality. But the fact is there's a part of repentance that really is a change of your mind. That is why they use that compound word. But our question would be, how do we understand this and, and this change of thinking? And is that really what it means more than just the, because of the parts? And yeah, and we can actually see it in the book of Acts. Paul goes and he's preaching at the Areopagus in Athens and so he's preaching to philosophers wise guys that would line themselves up and people on the way up uh, to the Areopagus in Athens would stop and listen to these guys preaching or teaching and they were philosophers secular philosophers and and so Paul's preaching them and this is what he says being then God's offspring we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold and silver or stone an image formed by the art and imagination of man the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. What is Paul calling them to change here exactly in this moment? How they think. Change how you think about who God is, who you are, what all these idols are. There's a part of repentance that is about a change of mind. This is why in Ephesians chapter 4, we get to a text that talks about the sanctification of believers. And so actually just go ahead and turn there. Ephesians 4, uh, it's probably my favorite. It's always dangerous to say that. Why would I even say that? Because I like Philippians 2, I like Hebrews 12. Okay. It's one of the best texts on sanctification. I think easiest to wrap my brain around. Uh, Steve's lowly mind. 
And this is what he says, Ephesians 4, 17. I just want to point out to you, and just pay attention to how many times the concept of thinking and mind works here. Ephesians 4, 17. Now this I say in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And by that, he's contrasting lost people and saved people. So don't walk like, soft pe- like lost people in the what? The futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Five times in five verses, he emphasizes thinking, learning, understanding. Why? Because there's so much of our lives that has everything to do with having the way we think about God and the world and truth changed. Why in the world do Christians gather together and sit and listen to one guy who's just like them talk about the Bible to change the way you think? Like, we're not up here laying out your individual weekly schedule and uh, a formula of all your relationships and what you need to do differently and how you need to function differently in order to be sanctified and live for God's kingdom. What we are doing is challenging the way you think. And what we're saying is we're going to take the Bible and we're going to treat it like a filter, a a sieve, a a colander, and we're going to take all of your thoughts and we're going to pour it through what the Bible says so that the only thing that drops out is now what the Bible says about a subject. To change how you think. Repentance is a change of mind. It starts in your lostness with a change of mind. I'm not that good of a person. The Bible says I'm not. You know what? It's actually saying the truth about me. Changing your mind about what your destiny is. I can be good enough to earn my way to heaven. God says, I'm actually not on mission for you to get the glory. I want the glory. I'm going to do a work so that you don't do the work so I look big and you don't because you ain't that big anyway. Well, that's really offensive. I know that. That's super offensive. I get that. But repentance, guess what? It's changing the way you think about that. I don't need Jesus. I got me. Wasn't he just a Jewish scholar? You know, a couple thousand years ago, oh no, he was actually the son of God, God in the flesh. It's changing how you think. As a believer, it's changing how you think. I'm not called to be uh, the shepherd, the neighbor, the father, the husband that I want to be. I'm called to be the shepherd, the father, the neighbor, the husband that God wants me to be. So i got to change the way I think. So instead of patting myself on the back, Steve, didn't you do a great job this week? I want to filter it through what God says how I should function. How God says I should act, that's a change of my mind. Repentance without question involves a changing of the way you think. Most specifically, most specifically, it's changing how you see sin. Paul has preached to the Corinthians, we know that. Spent 18 months with them when he started the church. He told the Corinthians, look, look, when you get saved, you can't keep living the way you live now. Corinthians, Corinth was this, <laughs> these are those moments in a sermon, rabbit trail, pause the movie, conversations, like you're watching Inception, you're like, what just happened, how did that work? We'll pause the movie, we'll have a conversation, we'll come back to it, right? So this pause moment, come back to it. This is one of those moments that like every part of my being wants to tell you how bad Corinth was, because I get so frankly tired of Christians whining about how bad it is now. Like you don't, you ain't even... Bad, bad, right? Like on nitromethane bad. 
And so Paul goes to that place, plants a church, and he calls people to change. You're going to have to change. Look, folks, Jesus is calling you to a new way of living. You know, the things I used to do, I ain't going to do them no more. But they, some of the people in Corinth didn't want to go along with that. And one of the guys definitely didn't want to go along with that because he's having this weird, creepy affair with his stepmother. And we're like, that's just gross. And the whole city of Corinth knows that's gross. And Paul's like, church, I've done told you, if that guy's going to claim and follow Jesus, he needs to turn. If he's not going to turn, repent from that, he can't be part of the church. Corinth is like, no, we're so nice. Everybody's in process. Paul's like, process is done. Dude needs to go. Church's like, no. He, so he tells them that. He taught them that. They write a letter to him asking questions about it. So he writes 1 Corinthians back to them. You know what the response is to that? Paul's just being a little harsh. Paul's a little judgmental, a little bit pharisaical coming out in him. No, we still love this brother. He's going to stick around. I was like, oh, no, sir. So Paul takes a trip to Corinth. And Paul's like, I'm going to put it down. So he puts it down. Painful visit, he calls it. You know what they say? No. Apparently, this guy stands up in the business meeting arguing with Paul. You're not going to judge me. You're of no account. You're a terrible apostle. Nobody should follow you. Everybody else in the church is either silent or they defend him. That's right. That is probably true. Paul is of no account. Look at him. He can't even make ends meet. So Paul's like, I'm out of here. Paul then has to write this severe letter and send it with Titus to them. In other words, Paul has taught and taught and taught and taught and taught. What's the difference now? They have rejected what Paul said for years at this point. And then suddenly, light bulbs pop and they get it. And they change their mind. And they discipline that guy out of the church. They say it's time to obey. That's what Paul is referencing when he says that they repented. And so if you still have your Bible, 2 Corinthians 7, I'll just point that out to you. What earnestness, verse 11, what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. It's changed how they thought because they wouldn't get rid of the guy, but now, now what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. The word punishment there would, frankly, be better translated with justice. They began to see the just thing to do was to deal with this. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. He doesn't mean like a criminal who says, I never did it. He means like a criminal who says, I did it. I'm never going to do it again. I'm going to pay restitution. Let me do what I need to do. I'm going away from that. That's what he means. I'm not who I used to be. Because they now change the way they think. Apart from a change of mind about sin, there is no repentance. But it's more than that. It involves what you do. It involves what you do. Now, one of the tools that we have to help us to understand the words that Paul and Jesus in this, these examples are using is the Septuagint. The Septuagint was this. You get to Jesus' day, right before Jesus' day, um, and the majority of the people are now speaking Greek. It's the trade language. But the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And so you'd have people trained to know and speak the Hebrew, um, and they would read commonly the text in the synagogues in Hebrew, but more and more people increasingly couldn't understand. It's kind of like what happened with the Reformation 400 years ago. Church services were being done only in Latin. People couldn't even read or write Latin. They didn't have accessible access to the Bible. And so part of the spark of the Reformation was to put the Bible in language that we can handle, that we can read, right? So you don't have to learn uh, or the, original, the Latin to understand the Bible. And so we, it's God's gift to us. We have the Bible in English, and it's really it's trustworthy. It is 
the, it is, it is as close as we can get. And so it's amazing translations. So you don't have to learn Koine Greek, a dead language, or Aramaic or Chaldean or Hebrew, all portions of the Bible written in those to understand it. And so in Jesus' day, they had the Septuagint. So the Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So this is why that's important. When we read in the Hebrew words about repentance and we ask, what words did they use in the Greek? That helps us to understand their mind of the language they were using. Does this, I hope this makes sense. I know that was a trail, but I hope you follow. I hope that was not nap moment. Um, and so when we want to understand what did Jesus mean or how did he understand it, we can look at the context. What did Paul mean and how did he understand it? We can look at the context. We can also look at how the Septuagint understood it in the Old Testament. Let me give you one. Significantly, Jewish Hebrew scholars used the word repent when they were translating Hebrew words that meant turn. And so while it's this changed mind, they use it to apply it anytime the Old Testament's talking about actually turning from doing one thing to doing something else. And here's one example in 1 Kings. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent, this is our English translation of the Greek and of the Hebrew ultimately, and so we do the same thing here. But the Hebrew word there actually means to turn away. If they repent, if they turn away and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent or turn with all their heart, with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive, and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you've chosen, and the house that I've built for your name, he goes on to say he's going to restore them. The Hebrew mindset the first generation first century jewish mindset and our mindset here today is that repentance involves an actual turning from one thing to something else listen we, we do this all the time we can turn from 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 buying one thing to buying something else we can we can we go out for lunch this afternoon you could turn from from going to one restaurant to going to another you can you can get on the highway this i don't know what was going on on friday but 26 was like a parking lot and so you could, you could start to go that way, and you can turn. Say, I'm not doing that. I'm going to turn and go this other way. We all understand this concept. You can be headed one direction and turn and go another direction. What I'm saying to you is that repentance is that. In part, repentance is turning. I'm turning from one thing to another. At salvation, I'm turning from trust in me. I'm turning to a path in a life of sin. I'm turning to being the one in charge of my life. And I'm turning to what God says is true about me. I'm turning to know, love, and follow Jesus. I'm turning to live a life submitted to what the Bible says I should do. It's turning. There is no escaping the biblical reality that when Jesus says repent and believe the gospel, he's not just saying turn from how you think. He's saying turn from how you live. Repentance is always going to involve actions of turning. We look for people to be different. Paul is looking for the Corinthians to change what they do. Not just that they think differently. Not just that they would acknowledge, yeah, Paul, we now agree with you. But they would actually do something about it. Not just that they would cry about it. That they'd be genuinely grieved about what they've done. That's worldly grief potentially, but godly grief leads to an actual turning of behavior. Where there is no 
change of behavior, listen now, despite how many tears you've seen shed, despite how many tears you've shed, where there's no change of behavior, there is no repentance. None. John the Baptist, I love how he preached it. He's down there, he's baptizing tons of people. People are coming, just, the scene is amazing, right? Camel skins, locust breath, rough dude, straight out the wilderness. He's out there, man's man, right? And he's got people, and they're coming into the Jordan River, this dirty river, and people are coming out, and, and John's baptizing them. And it's this beautiful image of cleansing, and ultimately it's going to be a picture, we know now, baptism of death, burial, and resurrection. It's an amazing moment. It's a glorious moment. John's baptizing people, and coming down to the city come the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were very recognizable. They dressed in their own little distinctive ways. They wanted everybody to know who they were. And it's kind of like you have this image of this group of guys coming down, and everybody's like, oh, get out the way. Here come the Pharisees. Here comes the Sadducees. Make, make a way, make a hole. And they're coming down, and they come down, and they want John the Baptist to baptize them. They want John the Baptist to baptize them because John the Baptist is popular, and they want to get on the train. And they want everybody to think that they're as popular as John the Baptist. John the Baptist sees them. They've come to be baptized. They've walked out of the city. They're giving some assent to what John the Baptist is saying. This is what John the Baptist says to them in Matthew 3.8. You brood of vipers. Bring to me fruits of repentance, and then I'll baptize you. John the Baptist has enough discernment to look past what they say, to look through what they're doing currently, to demonstrate genuine repentance involves genuine change, and they don't have it. Because they want to be dunked in the water and go back to playing Pharisee, Sadducee that everybody listens to, adding to God's word and to God's law to get people to submit to them, uh, harshly judging other people rather than humbly admitting and confessing their own sinfulness. John the Baptist sees through it because John the Baptist sees that repentance involves change, and they're not changing. So he's unwilling to be a participant in their hypocritical show. That's putting people on blast. Can you imagine that moment? Why are we so tempted to think that because I've shed some tears, because I see what I've done is wrong, that that's actually repentance when I keep going back and doing the same thing over and over again? It's not. It's not. This is why Paul actually uses seven different descriptions of change. The very first one, we'll unpack those more next week, but the very first one, what does he say it is? What earnestness, this godly grief is, you know what earnestness there is? It's the word, that it, we could translate it diligence. And the tense of the word means an ongoing action. This is what repentance is. You've seen what it is. You are grieving over it because that is the right response to sin. We'll talk about that just here in a minute. And now you actively change so that you don't go back to what you were doing. Friend that I had, a um, friend of mine at one point, was having to have some communication, written communication with, with someone. They really didn't want to be in this communication with this person. And I'm just speaking generalities so we can apply it. Um, so they're having to email, right, this person that they don't want to email and, and they, they, got some, they got some hard feelings toward this person, and justifiably so. But they know, and they get convicted, because sometimes they shoot an email back. I know none of us have done this, right? You get an email, and you're like, oh, all right. <laughs> Send, 
bam! And you feel really good about that. And then like one day you're having your devotions, or you're driving along, you're praying, you listen to a worship song, you sit in some sermon, and some preacher's talking, you're like, ah, why'd I do that? Now I've got to go back and ask for forgiveness. Please forgive me for being harsh and unloving and unkind. Send. Right? And then they send something back, and you're like, ah, send. And this person got tired of that cycle. And they got genuinely repentant because you could see the sorrow over it. You could see the acknowledgement that what I'm doing, returning evil for evil, is wicked and sinful and it's carnal. And this is what they did. They said, I'm going to stop responding until a few people that I know, love, and trust read my response first. And I'm going to confess. And I'm going to submit to God's kindness through these people to me before I respond. It's going to make life difficult because sometimes an email needed to be sent right then. Sometimes the other person was demanding a response. Oh, if I wait, but I've got to wait for my friends. And this person began a pattern of change that I'm not going to react because one of my reactions are carnal. And I won't do that anymore because they were generally broken. And so do you imagine the humility of that? I mean, this, they're not a child. The people they're asking to read and help them process through, they're not in the same situation. It'd be very easy for them to say, your counsel is not going to help me because you ain't walking my path. So what do I even need? I don't need your counsel. I got this. I got this. Don't I have the Holy Spirit? I got this. But they recognize the sin. They're broken over it. And the repentant step for them was to refuse to continue to engage in the behavior. Repentance always involves a change of action. Always. Always. Man, I've counseled so many marriages over the years. And remember one couple coming to me, they weren't part of the church, just part of the community, and they were just broken. They just wanted some help. And they come in, and the, the dude had a maritally long pattern of infidelity. And he was so irritated that his wife didn't believe his grief. I mean, it just oh, it fried his bacon. He's like, man, she just, I can never move past. And here, I, you know, I'm sorry about what I've done. I'm even hitting here for counseling. I chase the counseling. She won't let it go. She won't let it go. I mean, this is like a, like a 13-year pattern, right? And, I, and I'm just listening. I'm listening. And she's just sitting there, and she is steamed, you know? Like, it's, it's one of those moments, like, you're afraid to ask a question because it's going to be popping the top on that pressure cooker. Like, something's going to explode in this office right now. So, but I'm like, sometimes, sometimes you've got to open that door when you don't want to open the door, you know what I'm saying? So I'm like, so, can you share with me why you struggle believing your husband's repentance or his grief? And, I mean, she went off, y'all. I, like, I wish I had recorded it because it was epic. And she got to the end. There was some choice language, so I guess I'm glad I did. When she got to the end, and, and she was like stuttering. She was so angry. You ever been that angry? And what it amounted to is she's like, who does he still work with? Who are still the contacts on his phone? And who does he still private message through his fake Facebook account? I mean, you tell me. Is that dude repentant? That was some crocodile tears. I had another gentleman that I was working with that had a gambling addiction. 
but refused to share a bank account with his wife. Because I'm the man. You want to repent? Listen, repentance always involves a changing of behavior. Always. But repentance does involve how you feel. Again, back to the Septuagint. The way they understood it, they translate Job's responses here as repentance. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That word in the Hebrew is not turn. That word in Hebrew is the word for a heavy grief and sorrow. And they understood that repentance was a change of mind. Repentance was a change of action. Repentance was also a change of how you feel about your sin. You know, the reality is we can be sorry we keep doing certain things. That's worldly grief. Godly grief. Man, I start to see the sin the way God sees it. And I want to repent from it. I'm broken of it. In James 4, he talks about us humbling ourselves before God and weeping over our sin. And the word that he uses there about the depth of the sorrow is used in another place in the New Testament. And it's used to describe the grief of a mother who just lost her baby boy. Do you grieve over sin like that? I mean, there is a depth to the understanding of what my sin has done to others that I want to run from it. I want to see it how God sees it. And I am heart sick about it. Do you remember the first time, if you're here this morning, you're safe. Do you remember the first time you wrapped your feeble brain around the fact that Jesus hung on that cross for you? That Jesus cries to the Father and the land goes dark and there's silence from heaven? For you. He got silence so that you get come in. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Do you remember when that hit your heart? That is the way sin hits your heart when you repent. The grief hits you on a deep personal level. That's frankly why it's so impossible to believe that someone truly is repentant because they're crying and they're weeping, but they'll do nothing. They take no steps to change. They don't humble and submit themselves to the Word. They make no process and no progress. We're not demanding perfection. But we are saying when God's Spirit is at work in you, you're going to change. You're going to be sorrowful and consumed with it. There can be false grief. There's so many examples we could give. Here's one directly from Hebrews about Esau. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Esau is the guy that sells his birthright who sold his birthright for a single meal, for you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. When you start unpacking the language there, what it really means is he was sorrowful, but not willing to change. There's another guy in the New Testament you know about, Judas. Judas runs back to the priest and he throws the money in front of him and says, I'm sorry I did this. And then he walks right out and he hangs himself. His sorrow was all about him. Why do I say that? Because Peter denies Jesus three times and then embraces grace and forgiveness and he's repentant. The rest of the disciples aren't even present. What do they do? They ask forgiveness and they experience the welcoming arms of Jesus. Judas, though, it's all about him. Listen, that's one of the marks of worldly grief. You're sad, but it's actually all about you. How you look, how you feel, how you're perceived, how you're respected or not respected. That's not the same as grieving over sin in a godly way. I think we've all done that. We've all experienced it. Repentance is the God-given response 
that sees, feels, and separates ultimately from sin. Paul, looking at them, he says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt, listen, a godly grief. Paul saw true sorrow. True sorrow. But how did he know it was true sorrow? How did he discern that? Well, he gives seven different ways that they've changed. There was actually change. They did things different. Earnestness. That's an ongoing diligence that I'm going to keep running from this. Eagerness to clear themselves. Indignation, fear, longing, zeal, what punishment. At every point you prove yourself innocent in this matter. Why was there able to be relational restoration with Paul between him and the Corinthian church? Why was Paul able to say, you're my comfort, oh man, and you people are my joy? Because they were repentant. Because of that, there's relational restoration. Let me just remind you of this. In the gospel, faith and repentance is the bedrock of our salvation, of our conversion. We were at war with God, and now we are one and united with Christ because of relational restoration through faith and repentance, the work of Jesus. Every time you and I have sin in conflict with others, it is an incredible opportunity to image the gospel. Sin separates, repentance and restoration heals. So then what happens if you and I do our friendships in church where there's no real repentance, what happens when we do our homes and our workplaces and our communities and there's no real repentance? Do you know what we do? We twist the gospel. We warp it. We say that you can move forward and never confess. You can move forward and pretend. You can move forward, and as long as the tears are deep enough, long enough, and the snot flows enough freely, your sadness is enough. We can move forward and think that the power of Jesus Christ is strong enough to make the dead rise, but he's not strong enough to make sinners different. Can I call you to change your mind to what the Bible says about what repentance is? And, and, and remember at the start, I asked you, when was the last time Somebody hurt you deeply? Let me just ask this. When was the last time you hurt someone and you didn't repent? Well, some of you, it was this morning. Some of you that drive to church, that was, that, that was like purgatory. There was some intenseness. Some of you, it's going to be lunchtime because you're going to be hangry. Some of you, it was a year ago, 10 years ago. And your heart stirred right now, and they're like, what do I... I know I didn't repent. I didn't own it. You know what's kind about God? Is he as a loving father invites you to do that right now. Today. If you don't know Christ, he calls you. Do you ever convince yourself or try to convince others that you are repentant because you're sad? Grief is not repentance. Do you ever convince yourself or others you're repentant because you can name the sin? I agree that it's sin. Knowledge is not repentance. Do you own the sin? Do you own the facts of the sin, but also the motives of the sin? 
Do you grieve over the hurt to God and others? Do you actually turn and change? Not perfection for sure, but steady, consistent patterns of turning from that sin to holiness. Only that repentance leads to life. And can I tell you what Paul said? I'm excited, not because you grieved, but that you grieve to repenting because worldly grief produces death. Look, you wake up in the morning, you've got morning breath. You stink. There are seasons in my life that the words I've said relationally stink like death because it's been worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow. And I want to encourage you to join me on mission to be submitted to what the Bible says about repentance, that God may heal wounds and heal relationships. This is part one. Part one, next week, there's so much about how we work that relationally. We'll look at that then. 